Hello, everyone. This is the first episode of the America Unhinged podcast by me, your host, Cosmic Marauder. Please follow me on Twitch, Cosmic Marauder at FreeJerry88, Instagram, JerryFlow88. Tonight, we have a very interesting topic. We are going to examine the history of FBI and other security agency false flags in this country. The episode is titled From OKC to Capitol Hill in the Shadow of the Right Stack. This topic basically is just been resonating in my mind for months and months and months now. As I saw a lot of foreshadowing and things to come, I believe, with this Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping back in October, this plot, this alleged plot that it turned out there's a lot of serious problems with. If we go to November 13th, 2020, New Jersey Herald, we see the headline, Michigan Attorney General details extremist plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer, including plan to burn Capitol building. No one would get out of the Michigan State Capitol alive under an initial plan devised by the accused ringleader in a Michigan terrorist plot, according to the Michigan Attorney General's office. Adam Fox's plan A wasn't just storming the building and taking hostages, as, as officials have already said publicly, is to get in there and televise the execution of tyrants over the course of a week with no one coming out alive, <clears throat> or alternatively, lock the doors and set the building on fire. That's according to a brief filed by the Michigan Attorney General's office in Jackson County's 12th District Court against the pretrial release of Pete Musico, 42 in Munich, who's charged at the state level in connection with a plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. So you see the initial framing of that, right? We come, we fast forward all the way to July 13th, 2021. Here's an article from the Gateway Pundit by Christina Layla. It was a setup. FBI used at least 12 informants in Whitmer kidnapping case with only six defendants. At what point do we stop calling this a plot with actual citizen defendants? And we call this for what this is. It's an FBI security operation to foment dissent or doubt against certain groups of individuals. I don't know. You tell me on that one. Here, let's take a look at the article a little bit further. The FBI used at least 12 informants in the Michigan-Wetmer case. There are six defendants and 12 informants. Nothing to see here and move along. In October 2020, the FBI announced <clears throat> during a press conference that it thwarted a plot by a so-called right-wing militia to kidnap and kill Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, overthrow the state government. The FBI became aware of the plot through discussions on social media in early 2020. However, they decided to pull the trigger in October right before the presidential election and raid the homes of six men. So I want you guys to pay attention and keep that fact in mind. Also, <clears throat> last year, social media was allowing plots to kidnap state leaders on their platforms they didn't ban them they didn't use sms spying as you've seen our president and the press secretary speak of now as part of their plans and i'm going to keep making making the point that they're using the capitol hill riots and this little uh governor whitmer plot was a little testing for the waters to see how receptive the american population would be to such operations <clears throat> To show you how far they really go <coughs> to work both sides to foment dissent, you can see here, this is a quote from the article, reading from the article again. One of the men arrested in the plot was a Trump-hating anarchist, and another was a Black Lives Matter activist. But then candidate Joe Biden and the media still blamed Trump. It was previously reported that the ringleader in the plot to kidnap Whitmer was an FBI informant. And I also, in further reading, noted that there were other people at the top of this operation that weren't FBI, that were kind of infiltrated by the FBI. And then once they learned of the plans that some of these informants actually had, they reported it to the FBI. They got kicked out of the group. And then the FBI informant took the lead on this. You really cannot make this up. 
Back to the article, <clears throat> Gateway Pundit. He was planted into the group and was the one to push the entire plan, the FBI informant. Now it turns out the FBI used at least 12 informants. So basically, the entire plot was cooked up and executed by FBI informants, and a few unsuspecting patsies were dragged into the scheme. That's a little piece showing how much the narrative has changed from the initial report in October 2020, where it was an existential threat to the governor's life, to we see it being planned by some shady elements of the, of the FBI all along. What really struck me also in doing this podcast is that there was such a complete difference as to how the BLM and George Floyd protests were treated in the mainstream media versus how the Capitol Hill, quote, riot happened. Actually, the minimal amount of damage and lives lost in that protest. If you go to May 31st, 2020 on Fox News by Vandana Rambaran, at least 60 Secret Service members were injured in George Floyd protests in D.C. More than 60 Secret Service officers and special agents sustained multiple injuries in three days' worth of violent clashes stemming from protests demanding justice for George Floyd in Washington, D.C. The uprisings overflowed from Lafayette Park and continued near the White House on Saturday night early into Sunday morning. Protesters in the area had taken to the streets since Friday to condemn police brutality. Some demonstrators repeatedly attempted to knock over security barriers and vandalize six Secret Service vehicles, the agency said in a statement on Sunday. Protesters threw bricks, rocks, bottles, fireworks, and other items at officers, and some Secret Service personnel were also, quote, directly physically assaulted as they were kicked, punched, and exposed to bodily fluids, the statement added. At least 11 employees were treated at local hospitals for non-life-threatening injuries. No individuals crossed the White House fence and no Secret Service protesters were ever in danger, the agency said. President Trump said he couldn't have felt more safe from inside the White House on Saturday as agitated protesters defaced property and burned flags nearby. D.C. police helped equip Secret Service agents with the riot gear, including helmets, which are not a usual part of the protective gear. D.C. Mayor Muriel Browser pleaded for protesters to remain peaceful and not attack law enforcement. So, as I've seen, it's a complete disconnect and a travesty as to how these two series of events were treated. And I think the fact that people weren't held liable for some of these protests that others are, including these patsies of this Governor Whitmer plot, I think it just shows an obvious pattern of infiltration and at least agitation by the FBI. We're going to really get into the whole history of the FBI and all the shady goings on that they've been a part of. You know, this is just a little intro, but for now, let's go ahead and listen to a track from DMCA Free Lo-Fi Beats by Braden Warren. Let yourself go, and then we'll be back with more of the podcast. Thank you. 
All right. The next article I want <clears throat> to highlight for you is from TheIntercept.com by Ryan Grimm and John Schwartz, June 2nd, 2020. This is actually a quite, it's quite a hilarious article. The first part I'm going to read you. There's a little bit of irony, a little bit of a hilarity here. It might make you chuckle out loud, I hope. But for decades, the article states, local police and FBI have sent undercover officials to participate in and escalate protests. I'm just going to read a little bit from this article, but, you know, we're going to tell a story of four carpenters and the Ministry of Puppet Ganda. Can't make it up. When Harry, George, Tom, and Joe showed up at a warehouse outside Philadelphia rented by protesters, organizers were immediately suspicious. The man claimed to be, quote, union carpenters from the Scranton, Pennsylvania area who built stages, just the kind of help the protesters needed. They're preparing for the Republican National Convention in 2000, where the party would be nominating George W. Bush. Across the country, allied organizers were planning similar protests for the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles. One of the hallmarks of the social justice movement at the time was its puppets. Organizers were coming off successful protests in Seattle in November 1999 against the World Trade Organization, and in Washington, D.C. in April 2000, against the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, and it managed to reshape the politics of globalization. Soaring papier-mâché puppets rolled through the streets on individually constructed floats, projected a festive air, capturing sympathetic media coverage and countering the authorities' narrative that the protesters were nihilists simply relishing a property destruction. The four carpenters were good with the hammer, but much about them had protesters wary. They were, in fact, infiltrators. In conversation, they were not very political or well-informed, recalled Chris Hermes, an organizer in Crashing the Party, his memoir of the affair. They were older and more muscular than most protesters, he wrote, and they assisted on drinking beer while working, despite the organizer's ban on drinking in the warehouse. In discussions and meetings, they asserted the right of protesters to destroy property and to physically resist arrest. The movement's intentional lack of hierarchy left organizers with little ability to act on their suspicious infiltration even as they were becoming more deft at sussing out such provocateurs. On August 1st, the first full day of the Republican convention, police surrounded the warehouse known as the, quote, Ministry of Puppet Ganda, unquote, executed mass arrests, and confiscated the puppets, floats, signs, and other materials to be used in the upcoming marches. The police lied, publicly saying that organizers had been planning violent demonstrations and hinting darkly at bomb-making materials being hidden in the warehouse. That roundup presaged other mass arrests of protest leaders throughout the week, followed by beatings inside the jail and even a $1 million bond. When the warrant for the warehouse raid was unsealed, it finally confirmed that Harry, George, Tom, and Joe had been state troopers assigned to infiltrate the group and to produce a pretext for a raid. All the charges against the puppeteers were eventually dropped, and the saga would eventually cost the city millions of lawsuits with much of the legal work led by radical attorney Larry Krasner, who is now Philadelphia district attorney. There's a historical fact, as this episode illustrates, that law enforcement frequently infiltrates progressive political movements into using agent provocateurs who urge others to engage in violence. There's also a historical fact that more rarely such provocateurs commit acts of violence themselves. So here... You see, even in the late 90s, early 2000s, they're searching for domestic dissent that gains popularity and they're looking to squash it. 
we know that the FBI started with this infiltration of the KKK in the 20s and 30s, saw the success of that, and applied it to other areas of discontent, i.e. the Black Panthers, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, and even the death of Martin Luther King Jr., as shocking as that is for people to know. But we're heading now to Reveal.com, you know, reading an article here revealnews.org sorry by seth rosenfeld august 20th 2012 man who armed black panthers was fbi informant record show there's a whole video on this we will not watch it though we will read the article the man who gave the black panther party some of his first firearms at weapons training which preceded fatal shootouts with Oakland police in the turbulent 1960s was an undercover fbi informer according to a former bureau agent fbi report this name's Rich, Richard Masato Aoki as a fierce military who touted street fighting abilities and was a member of several radical groups before joining an army of the Black Panthers, whose members received international notoriety for brandishing weapons during patrols of the Oakland police and protests at the state legislature. He went on to work for teachers 25 years, counselor and administrator of the Peralta Community College District. After he committed suicide in 2009, and he was revered as a fearless radical. The article says here, but up in notes to his fellow activists, Aoki had served as an FBI intelligence informant, covertly filing reports on a wide range of Bay Area political groups, according to a bureau agent who recruited him. The agent's name is Bernie Threadgill Jr., and he recalls that he approached Aoki in the late 1950s, about the time Aoki was graduating from Berkeley High School. He asked Aoki if he would join left-wing groups and report to the FBI. He was my informant. I developed him, Threadgill said in an interview. He was one of the best sources we had. The former agent said they asked Aoki how he felt about the Soviet Union, and the young man replied they had no interest in communism. I said, well, why don't you just go to some of the meetings and tell me who's there and what they talked about. Very pleasant little guy. He was wore dark glasses, Threadgill recalled. Aoki's work for the FBI, which has never been reported, was uncovered and verified during research for the book Subversives, the FBI's War on Student Radicals and Reagan's Rise to Power. The book, based on research spanning three decades, will be published tomorrow. This is back in 2012 by Farrar, Strauss, and Garreau. In a tape-recorded interview for the book in 2007, two years before he committed suicide, Aoki was asked if he had been an informant. Aoki's first response was a long silence. He then replied, oh, is all I can say. That's a nice little bit of information there. It just shows you that the FBI will and has gone to any lengths to infiltrate these organizations. They've committed personal acts of violence. They led, we'll see this in just a moment, they led a terror campaign against Martin Luther King Jr. as soon as he became anti-war and a segment of the FBI known as COINTELPRO is basically an intelligence agency that has ties to the CIA, has ties to what is now the NSA. Coatel Pro is basically like an assassination, almost death squad of infiltrators, like professional infiltrators within the FBI. They committed crazy borderline acts of state terror. It's really, it's really insane. It's really insane. It's another reason why I keep making this Reichstag comparison is because. It was well thought that the Reichstag fire was coordinated by elements within the own government to cement Hitler's power, to lead to his Reichstag fire decree. Just, you know, there's a lot going on at play in our society today. If we look to history, quite often we see the same patterns and the same playbooks be played over and over again. And each time something really works to trick the populace or freak out the populace, they make a note of it. And they follow it away somewhere, or they do break it out from time to time to manipulate the populace. We go to jacobinmag.com from March 2021. We obtained new FBI documents on how and why Fred Hampton was murdered. If you recall, Fred Hampton was a, an incredibly prominent civil rights leader. He was a member of the Black Panthers organization, Black Panthers Party, and he was making an incredible headway. He was more anti-violence than a lot of other, you know, sentiments within these organizations. He 
he was making real headway. He was anti-war. Him and MLK Jr. were really preaching the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War thing, and it was 100% a threat to the establishment. Here's the article. FBI files related to the 1969 murder of Fred Hampton, newly obtained by Jacobin, shed light on two key aspects of the Bureau's anti-Black Panthers operation. One, FBI informant <clears throat> William O'Neill was more vital beyond helping murder Hampton than previously understood. <clears throat> Sorry. Two, sabotaging the Panthers' ability to work with organizations was an explicit FBI goal. The release of the film Judas and the Black Messiah has once again put the spotlight on the Chicago police and the FBI's culpability in the murder of Fred Hampton, a rising leader of the Black Panther Party in the pivotal year 1969. In our previous Jacobin article, we documented the Bureau's efforts specifically aimed at Hampton and stressed the need for more information to better understand the circumstances surrounding his murder. Since then, we have obtained 433 pages of the FBI's official Cointel profiles on the Chicago Black Panther Party. Along with this, the FBI, pursuant to a Freedom of Information request by Aaron Leonard, released another 490 pages on their employee and handler of FBI informant of Black Panther William O'Neill, Special Agent Roy Martin Mitchell. With this new information, two things come more clearly into focus. First, the FBI counterintelligence operations against the Chicago Black Panther Party were particularly focused on sabotaging the group's ability to join and work with other organizations. Second, Bureau informant William O'Neill, who had garnered a leading position in the Chicago chapter, was a far more vital resource beyond complicity in the murder of Fred Hampton that has been understood. These discoveries, while added to the historical record, also give a clearer picture of the thinking behind the FBI's measures of their efforts to destroy the left. A fuller understanding of this thinking and methodology matters for a new left, aiming to avoid the Bureau's efforts at disruption in the 21st century. <coughs> This next paragraph is really interesting here because it's going to highlight how they weren't specifically focused necessarily. Although, I mean, obviously the black cell rights movement was, they were obsessed with squashy, let's be real, but it wasn't just limited to them. They were looking at other communist Marxist uh, democratic student organizations to try to infiltrate them also and sabotage their ability to work with these black Panthers. And here we'll get into this article about the Students for a Democratic Society. In 1969, Students for a Democratic Society, the largest radical student organization of the 60s, broke apart and results both of the group's own internal divisions and efforts by the FBI to head off the group from evolving beyond its Big Tent inclusiveness into a more disciplined, radical organization. Given that, it is not surprising the Bureau would also expend serious effort to sabotage relations between SDS his national office was then in Chicago and the Chicago Black Panther Party. To that end, there were two COINTELPROs, official disruptive operations that were proposed, approved, and executed in the FBI hierarchy, leveled at SDS, documented in the files. The first scheme aimed to disrespect the BPP in relation to SDS. As the head of the Chicago FBI wrote to the FBI director, through BB. BPP informants and other black nationalist informants plant the idea that SDS is exploiting the BPP by trying to use them as, quote, cannon fodder, unquote, for a white revolution. The idea was to use the racial and class differences of the two groups against each other. This comes through the COINTELPRO New Left memo of May 1st, 1969. The concept of white students studying at universities while black panthers are going to jail or being killed and the ghetto would be encouraged. The FBI was optimistic about the success of this undertaking, writing, it's felt that BPP will be receptive to charges of white exploitation and may react strongly to it, thus weakening or dissolving the alliance with SDS. Hedging their bets, the Bureau wrote that if that plan did not work, they could also undermine SDS by amplifying the student radicals' already considerable defensiveness in regard to the Panthers. If the BPP accepts the above but does not break with SDS, they could be encouraged to, quote, exploit SDS by making further demands on them to, quote, prove their loyalty. Does anybody see any semblance of this with the Black Lives Matter movement and how they've hijacked the white liberal left? Just a thought. Increased demands for funds of free printing of BPP literature could place pressure on the strained finances of SDS. This Quintel Pro was approved with the FBI cannily instructing that 
quote, sources should be given different arguments so this does not look like a plan. As they explain, under present circumstances, SDS is giving complete, almost slavish support to the BPP, which would jeopardize the standing of any SDS informant who criticized BPP. If there is any wavering of the SDS support of BPP, informants would be used to aggravate any developing split. That's the major highlight I wanted to give you out of that article. And right now, let's go ahead and listen to another song over here by Phaselock called No One. I'd like to thank everybody once again for listening to the America Unhinged podcast. Your support means a lot, lot to me. Check out my Patreon, which I don't have much on at all right now. My Twitter, I'm pretty active and getting followers by the day. I have a Twitter link there in the bio and Instagram and my YouTube also. Once I get back on YouTube in about another week, you can expect some videos on there too. Now we're going to shift gears and talk about one of the most well-known facts now about the Martin Luther King assassination and the FBI. And it's the fact that they've admitted to the role in their assassination of Mr. King right now. But in, 19, in a 1999 civil trial, King versus Jowers determined former Memphis PD officer Lloyd Jowers had been complicit in a conspiracy to assassinate Dr. King. December 1993, <clears throat> Jowers appeared on ABC's Primetime Live, confessing to his participation in Dr. King's assassination. Jowers admitted he believed MPD Lieutenant Earl Clark fired the shot that killed Dr. King, not James Earl Ray. Although the U.S. government claims that Jowers fabricated his allegations, they have also admitted responsibility in attempting to ruin Dr. King's marriage and persuading him to commit suicide. So... Here's part of the article as well. It's been 52 years since the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> the FBI and Memphis Police Department have sparingly released information implicating themselves or members of their agencies and facilitating or directly causing the timely death of Dr. King. Though the Justice Department officially claims James O'Reilly assassinated MLK, a civil suit later determined that a Memphis cop was involved in conspiracy to murder the civil rights leader. Here on the CorbettReport.com from a transcript of episode 334, 
we could listen or we could read right here rather. We'll start midway through the article. It states <clears throat> the official story relies on a picture of James L. Ray as an arch criminal mastermind determined to kill Martin Luther King, capable of accomplishing that task with precision. But in reality, Ray was more of a bumbling burglar than a calculating killer. After one of his attempts at armed robbery, Ray managed to shoot himself in the foot while running away from the scene of the crime. In another, he fell out of his own getaway car <clears throat> while making his escape. If he had been competent enough to pull off such a plot, the official story was never able to explain how he funded his transcontinental activities after his miraculous escape from Missouri State Penitentiary. But even Ray's escape from prison itself, long taken at face value, has since been shown to have been part of a larger plot instigated by the FBI. Dr. William F. Pepper, who became Ray's attorney after meeting with him in prison in the late 70s and later went on to represent the King family in a civil suit and write the definitive book on the case, The Plot to Kill King, explains. He was always trying to escape when he was in prison, and we thought that was par for the course, and that he lucked out he was able to get into this bread truck that was delivering bread to the prison and get away. That's what I thought for all these years. And it was only within really the last four or five years following a deposition of a critical witness that we learned that in fact the government had profiled James Earl Ray and they had effectively organized his escape. And I learned that because the head of the Dixie Mafia family who was working with the FBI on the killing drove to the prison and in the car was his son. And they carried $25,000, which they gave to the warden to organize James' escape. <clears throat> and the son was my witness for that mission with his father. The FBI have reprofiled Ray and identified him as a potential scapegoat that could easily be manipulated, bribed the warden with $25,000 delivered from Director Hoover to his right-hand man, <clears throat> Clyde Tolson, and taken to the prison by the Bureau's Dixie Mafia collaborator, Russell Atkins Sr., from there was a question of directing Ray, now an escaped convict, in a way that he could be framed for the ultimate strike against King. Enter Raul Kahlo, a, a gunrunner and drug smuggler who met Ray in a salon, saloon in Montreal when he escaped to Canada after his prison break. Raul had a proposition for Ray. If Ray would follow Raul's instructions and help him with some criminal activities, Raul would provide Ray with the travel documents that he was seeking to allow him to reach Africa where he believed he would be safe. According to Ray, it was Raul who gave him the money he needed during this time, including the $2,000 for the white Ford Mustang, a purchase that subsequent investigations into Ray's movements can never explain. There's just a small little excerpt from there. <clears throat> Here's a funny little article from Foreign Policy, September 7th, 2012. Does the FBI have an informant problem? How the Bureau is playing fast and loose in its fight against domestic terrorism. There's an American trope we all know and love. The loose cannon cop who doesn't play by the rules. Whether it's Dirty Harry, Raylan Givens, or Jack Bauer, the story's as reassuring as it is trite. There's someone out there who can get the job done and doesn't worry about coloring inside the lines. In counterterrorism circles, that figure is known as a professional informant, and the truth is far more complicated and troubling the comforting fiction. Professional informants are paid by law enforcement to infiltrate criminal or extremist circles, sometimes on a full-time basis, yet they are not considered employees of the government and are not subject to the same rules. From warrantless searches to sex with targets to constructing terrorist plots out of thin air, the informant problem is not new, but this powerful investigative tool is under pressure like never before after being exposed to the harsh light of day in a series of recent terrorism trials. Growing media scrutiny and a pending civil lawsuit in California are aggressively challenging whether the benefits of aggressive informant tactics outweigh the risk to civil liberties and are raising troubling questions about the legitimacy of terrorism investigations. The risks to recruiting informants from within criminal organizations have been amply documented over the years, but usually with mobsters, not terrorists. Law enforcement could get too cozy with informants inside criminal organizations lead to corruption and other complications, as in the cases of Whitey Bulger and Gregory Scarpa. <clears throat> because they are not insiders but infiltrators, these informants exist in a netherworld, somewhere between snitch and cop. But while agents are rigorously trained about what's legal, ethical, and fair, informants are often just given a stipend, a sense to work. In an ideal world, that work is supposed to be limited in scope. 
In one of the earliest known examples, an FBI informant covering the Black Panthers helped arm the group prior to its violent conflicts with Oakland, California police in the 60s. We learned about Aoki previously, but here we have <clears throat> an, a little excerpt kind of going to make my transition here to how they're starting to focus now on white domestic terror cases. I'm using air quotes there, but the FBI needs a new scapegoat now. They try to use the A movement of the 70s and 80s, you know, to little avail. That kind of backfired and blew in their face with the Leonard Peltier situation. And from there on, they had to shift to like these white nationalist supremacist groups. And we see it with OKC. We see it with Waco. We see it with several other uh, organizations. During the 90s, an FBI informant named Vince Reed rose to a top leadership position in the white supremacist Aryan Nations organization. Reed has always dreamed of being a law enforcement officer, but an injury disqualified him for working on the street, according to his former FBI handlers. Instead, Reed became a professional informant, monitoring the Hell's Angels for the FBI after being recruited into the gang in prison. When that assignment ended, he infiltrated the Aryan Nations, a group with which he had no prior affiliation. A swastika tattoo left over from his biker days helped. The FBI invested considerable resources, including multiple undercover operations in support of his efforts. And Reed served for years before testifying against some of the group's members in 1996. <clears throat> Such cases are not representative of the vast majority of informants, a label that can be applied to almost anyone who provides information on an investigation. <clears throat> the over overwhelming majority of informants fall into non-controversial categories. Some are paid for information. Others receive leniency regarding their own criminal behavior. Many informants are simply good people who happen to live next door to bad people. That's an apt description of Karen Wister Kearns, an informant in the traditional sense, found, not made. After the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, the FBI recruited her to collect information on her neighbor, white supremacist Mark Thomas, an Aryan Nations preacher sporting a Hitler mustache who held white power rock concerts at his rural Pennsylvania farm as a tool to recruit skinheads and neo-Nazis into the world of organized racism. I would receive phone calls. Could you drive up to Thomas's compound to see if there's a particular vehicle with out-of-state license plates? Mr. Kearns recalled. <clears throat> they would always end it with, don't do anything that puts you in danger. There's a couple more mentions here <clears throat> of the OKC case. Dennis Mahan was a big talking white supremacist who moved in some of the same circles as Thomas and even Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. During the 1990s, Mahan's girlfriend, a blonde bombshell sporting a swastika tattoo, was recruited to inform on him to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Her reporting never led to the arrest, but investigators retained one crucial piece of information. Mahan had a fatal weakness for women, especially if he thought he had a shot at sex. In late 2004, the ATF decided it needed another informant next to Mahan, but this time she would be made, not found. According to the Arizona Republic, ATF agent Tristan Moreland recruited Rebecca Williams, a former stripper with no criminal record and no previous connection to Mahan or white supremacy. Moreland preferred to cast his informants like a Hollywood director rather than work with what he found, the newspaper reported. By all accounts, Williams' motives for taking part in the investigation were pure. Her father and uncle had been in law enforcement. <laughs> I kind of wanted to be a cop, she told the Republic. Williams became, for all intents and purposes, a paid employee of the ATF, but because she was classified as an informant, she was not sub subject to the same scrutiny regulation that would be that would tie the hands of a trained undercover agent. <clears throat> so, right here, I just wanted to note some early cases in the '90s about them infiltrating white supremacist organizations, but in between the Black Power. Black Power, Black Panther movements, and the domestic terrorism, white nationalist push, push of the 90s, we had the AIM movement. The AIM movement was the American Indian movement where they were seeking basically past reparations for discrimination, how they've been treated by the U.S. government. And one of the most famous individuals, pretty much one of the main leaders of the movement, I believe, was Leonard Peltier. He was a very prominent guy. He was probably spied on also <clears throat> by the FBI, and he was completely set up, essentially. I want to try to find the uh, 
the paragraphs I want to highlight here from his letter. This letter is called When the Truth Doesn't Matter on Counterpunch.org, January 9th, 2007. Here's a little excerpt. My case demonstrates the illegal means which our government will utilize to ensure that I, a Native American, am punished for the death of two FBI agents without regard to whether I did it, which I did not, without regard to the deprivation of my rights. All the government cared about was that someone was punished for an incident provoked by the FBI, the corrupt tribal government, and its private police known as the Goon Squad. And yet, I remain in prison. The United States government keeps me in prison to justify the continuing abuses against not only Native American people, but anyone who seeks to fight criminal abuses such as those committed and or aided by the FBI in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation between 1973 to 1976. This country has waged and continues to wage War not just against Native Americans, but against any form of domestic political dissent. Secret domestic intelligence programs, such as the well-documented COINTELPRO program and the Patriot Act, have eroded and destroyed the constitutional rights and liberties of all peoples of this nation. But most, most people rather ignore injustice than take a stand against injustice and face the wrath of our government. What I was not allowed to introduce into evidence was the indisputable evidence that the United States government and corrupt tribal <clears throat> government committed war crimes against Oglala people than the so-called reign and terror from 1973 to 1976. Yet these crimes have never been uninvestigated. And if anything, they have been ignored and certain propagandists have revised history to say they never occurred. Similar to those who espouse that the genocide of Native American people never occurred in the Americas. The one exception is the murder of Anna May Aquash, which the United States government began pursuing earnestly nearly 30 years after her death in order to smear me to harm my chances at parole through the use of hearsay testimony and unsubstantiated innuendo. I unequivocally deny that I had anything to do with the murder of Anna May, and I condemn those who murdered her and those who seek to smear me and make me a patsy for the crime they committed. The disputable government misconduct which led to my wrongful conviction represents a threat to the liberties of each and every one of us. Perhaps this is what ultimately struck the conscience of Judge Haney, a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, who despite the glaring evidence of government misconduct, wrote a strained and legally embarrassing decision to deny my first habeas petition and compelled him to write a letter supporting my request for presidential clemency. <laughs> Here, I'm going to play a video made by Democracy Now! when they were concerned with doing real journalism, also from the year 2007, also in the August of that year. It's funny, there's a couple, both of those came out in August 2007, disparaging the FBI. But this video is called It's Search of John Doe Number Two, the story the feds never told about the Oklahoma. About the Oklahoma City bombing. Sorry, people. First podcast. Let's go ahead and give it a listen. Most people in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing is a closed case. Timothy McVeigh, his accomplice Terry Nichols, were the two prime suspects accused. McVeigh was executed in 2001, Nichols serving a life sentence. But a Salt Lake City lawyer searching for the truth behind his brother's death has uncovered a wealth of new information that could implicate the FBI. The documents he dug up through countless Freedom of Information requests suggest the FBI knew about the plot to bomb the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in advance, but did little to prevent it. Jesse Trentadue's brother, Kenny Trentadue, was found dead in his prison cell in Oklahoma City in August 1995. The FBI calls it a suicide, but Jesse maintains Kenny was beaten to death during an interrogation. Jesse has spent the last 12 years battling the Department of Justice and FBI to find out why his brother was killed. He believes the FBI mistook his brother for the missing second suspect in the Oklahoma City bombings, the so-called John Doe number two. His research also suggests the bombing was not the work of one or two men, but involved a wider network connected to the far-right white supremacist movement. Earlier this year, Jesse Trentadue's theory of a wider plot was echoed by Danny Coulson, the former deputy assistant director of the FBI, who was in charge of collecting evidence from the Murrah building in 95. Coulson told the BBC in March of this year that he's calling for a federal grand jury investigation into the bombings because he questions whether everyone involved was caught. 
He also says FBI headquarters prematurely shut down their investigation into the alleged links between a white supremacist community called Elohim City and the bombings. This controversy is the subject of the latest investigation by our current guest, Jim Ridgway. It's the top story in the July-August issue of Mother Jones. It's called In Search of John Doe Number 2, the story the feds never told about the Oklahoma City bombing. James Ridgway is still with us in Washington, D.C., and Jesse Trentadu joins us on the phone from Salt Lake City. Jim, lay out the broader story here. Well, from the, from the point of the bombing, there was a very general suspicion, <clears throat> suspicion and develop, developing information that suggested that probably in addition to McVeigh and Nichols, other people were involved in this. I mean, and one of the reasons, one of the immediate reasons was that nobody could figure out how these two guys put together this huge bomb overnight. And there were various reports, you know, of other people in the vicinity of where they were supposedly making the bomb and so on and so forth. So there was uh, an effort by, this, by some citizens in Oklahoma City to put together their own, you know, investigation. There's just a little excerpt from that video. I recommend you check out Corbett Report's uh, information on the subject. Uh, Terrence Yakey, a requiem for the suicide, particularly comes to mind. But I just wanted to briefly give you a timeline on how they shifted from the Black Power movement and Civil Rights movement, squashing that dissent. They basically had to keep their funding and keep the machine going, right, somehow. So you have to find other groups to target. And they found the AIM movement, Leonard Peltier. They found Hell's Angels, the white supremacist galore, right? They found all kinds of patsies. Elham City out there in OKC, near OKC, where they're claiming they recruited Timothy McVeigh and several other people. It's just a lot of, quite frankly, bogus, bogus claims. I'm... I'm of the belief that this podcast was showing that the FBI actually creates situations like these and we have far less of an extremist problem than that we're made to believe. I want to highlight this article now on yahoos.com from June 16, 2021. But Matt Gates asked about role of federal undercover agents in Capitol Riot. On Tuesday, Gates wrote a letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray asking three questions regarding the extent to which the three primary militia groups were infiltrated by agencies of the federal government. Here's his official letter right here. As the events of January 6, 2021 come to clear relief, many questions remain unanswered. On June 8, 2021, the Senate Homeland Security Committee and the Senate Rules Committee jointly produced a 95-page report finding problems ranging from Federal intelligence agencies failing to warn of a potential for violence to a lack of planning and preparation by U.S. Capitol Police and law enforcement leadership. I'm seeking your answers to clarify the following questions. One, the year leading up to the events on January 6th and during January 6th itself, to what extent were the three primary militia groups, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Three Percenters, infiltrated by agencies of the federal government, including the FBI, or formants of said agencies? Two, Exactly how many federal undercover agents or confidential informants were present at the Capitol or in the Capitol during the, quote, siege? What roles did they play? Merely passive informants or active instigators? <clears throat> and three, of all the unindicted co-conspirators referenced in the charging documents of those indicted for crimes on January 6th, how many worked as a confidential informant or as an undercover operative for the federal government, FBI, Army counterintelligence, etc.? I expect an answer from your office by August 1st, 2021. Thank you. Sincerely, Matt Gates, member of Congress. And from there, we go to Fox News via Real Clear Politics. This is a short little interview with Tucker Carlson and Glenn Greenwald. The little header is FBI involvement in Capitol Riot, not a quote, crazy conspiracy theory, unquote. This is what they do. Let's give it a listen. There is no possibility the FBI could have had any foreknowledge of the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, nor could anyone in the mob that stormed the Capitol have been in contact with the FBI before the event. We believe otherwise, given the FBI's long track record. Glenn Greenwald is one of the people who has been covering the FBI's behavior, particularly its anti-terrorism efforts, very closely for a long time. As so we want to get his assessment, and we are right now. Glenn, great to see you. Thank you for coming on tonight. So. 
give us some perspective. We're, we're hearing that anybody who has questions about why two dozen participants have not been charged on January 6th is a conspiracy monger and a lunatic and probably a soldier in the QAnon army. Is there, based on precedence, reason to ask that question, do you think? Of course, the entire first war on terror, I regard this as the second war on terror, the domestic version. Yeah. The entire first war on terror <laughs> contained very little other domestically than the FBI targeting people that they viewed as easily manipulated or otherwise vulnerable, implanting informants or other operatives within a certain ring of typically American Muslims, very young ones, encouraging them then to join a plot that was devised and designed by the FBI, often paying for it, the FBI was, to get the material and everything else, and then boasting about the plot that they broke up that was a plot that came from the FBI. The vast majority of times that you heard the FBI applauding itself for having stopped a terrorist plot domestically was actually a plot that they themselves governed and directed with informants and with operatives exactly of the type that we know for certain they put into the Proud Boys and the three percenters, two of the three groups they claim are behind January 6th. So the only way you could claim this is some kind of a crazy conspiracy theory is if you're really ignorant about what the FBI does or lying on purpose to cover up what the FBI does when it acts domestically. But if you're a journalist, why would you ever lie on behalf of a law enforcement agent, government law enforcement agency? Why would you choose to protect the FBI over informing your own viewers? I think this is the key point, Tucker, is the structure of pretty much all these outlets that are now serving a liberal audience in the United States, which is the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, NBC News, NPR. And it's not just me saying that. The data shows that during the Trump years, the CIA and the FBI became overwhelmingly popular among American liberals. They worshiped the FBI and the CIA because they viewed it as the bulwark against Trump. So if you're serving a liberal audience, the last thing you know your audience wants to hear and their audience is disappearing, so they're petrified of them, is anything that is questioning of or critical of the FBI, on top of which all these news outlets are filled on their payroll with former operatives of the FBI and the CIA. So, for example, when CNN wanted to cover this story, who did they invite on? They said, let's get the truth, Chris Cuomo said. Here's my colleague, the former deputy director of the FBI, who a journalist talks to the FBI to get the truth about the FBI when the question is, is the FBI being truthful or is their actions less than scrupulous? But these outlets are completely constructed to serve this worshipful view of the FBI and the CIA that everything that they say should never be questioned. That's what drove Russiagate for five years. So many of the false conspiracy theories that these outlets spread and they're doing it again. There's a quick little video excerpt for Glenn Greenwald, who's been a very vocal opponent of the FBI, the domestic uh, war on terror, the surveillance state that we kind of found ourselves in. Here's a very interesting article I found from July of 2021 by the American Thinker, a Capitol Police officer who's a BLM activist. Among the many weeping people paraded before the House on Tuesday to testify about how deeply traumatizing it was for conservatives rather than usual left-wing activists to protest at the Capitol was one Harry Dunn, a giant of a man who claimed that he was intensely traumatized by the fact that protesters called him the N-word, the horror of it all. Except there's reason to believe that Dunn may have been lying. There's no footage of this alleged racial outrage. Additionally, it turns out that Dunn is a BLM activist, a Trump hater, and a supporter of political violence his political violence, not your free speech or protest. Leftists were incredibly affected by Officer Dunn's, Officer Dunn's testimony. As far as they were concerned, he proved that not only were the people of the Capitol on January 6th who killed no one, looted nothing, and set no fires, the worst mob ever in the history of America, but they were racist. Before that horrible day, he said, no one had ever, ever called me an N-word while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer. The way I read, read those words, Dunn is saying that none of his fellow Capitol Police officers called him N-word, but apparently they did so on January 6th. Shame on them. But is that the truth? There's reason not to believe him. First, there's no footage of a heavily videotaped event. 
videotaped by leftist provocateurs in the crowd, media types, FBI informants, FBI agents, as well as by the protesters. He's a noted Trump hater. We're, there's a few tweets on the site. If you go to AmericaThinker.com, you can see all the hate he kind of has been posting online. You see some pictures of him and his daughter in Black Lives Matter clothing and at a protest of signs. It's very interesting, especially what we see with Glenn Greenwald, what he just said there about the FBI using these media outlets to push a narrative. Like it's not completely out of the question now. They uh they probably encourage Capitol Police officers and other folks to post these kind of social justice memes to get the public uh, perception swayed a little bit at this time. And that's what that's what has been really crazy, I think, of the last, you know, f- five years with the Trump presidency and the uh, the radicalization of the left and how this last year and a half, even prior to inauguration, they really were pushing the narrative that there was going to be some kind of big event. There's going to be, a, I remember the words were Trump's going to lead a coup on January 6th, right? And he's going to seize the White House. He's going to subvert the whole rule of law. But we'll talk about a famous historical event where that really happened. And one certain particular country, they had their holy house of Congress burned and destroyed in the 1930s. And I'm guessing you guys can guess, but let's go ahead and listen to one more song by Brian Warren. We got Phase Lock with Starry Eyes. Here you see the Reichstag, the German House of Parliament in Berlin. 
which has been seriously destroyed by fire. The main hall in which the deputies conducted their debates has suffered most from the conflagration. And after the general election, which is about to take place, Parliament will have to find a temporary home elsewhere. Flames are no respecters of persons, and President Hindenburg's own chair was also destroyed. Hitler, now Chancellor, has announced that the fire was the work of communists and was intended to be the signal for a Bolshevist <laughs> uprising throughout the country. In consequence, Germany has been placed under a system of martial law, a decree having been signed which aims at the total destruction of communism. That was some news coverage of the Reichstag fire. <coughs> and here, I just basically have the Wikipedia on the Reichstag fire decree. The Reichstag fire decree is the common name of the decree of the Reich president for the protection of people and state, issued by German President Paul von Hindenburg on the advice of Chancellor Adolf Hitler on February 28, 1933, in immediate response to the Reichstag fire. The decree nullified many of the key civil liberties of German citizens. With Nazis in powerful positions of the German government, the, the decree was used as a legal basis for the imprisonment of anyone considered to be opponents of the Nazis, and to suppress publications not considered friendly to the Nazi case. The decree is considered by historians as one of the key steps in the establishment of a one-party Nazi state in Germany. The text of the decree is as follows. On the basis of Article 48, Paragraph 2 of the Constitution of the German Reich, the following is ordered a defense against communist state-endangering acts of violence. Articles 114, 115, 117, 118, 123, 124, and 153 of the Constitution of the German Reich are suspended until further notice. It is therefore permissible to restrict the rights of personal freedom, habeas corpus, freedom of opinion and expression, including the freedom of the press, the freedom to organize and assemble, the privacy of postal, telegraphic, and telephonic communications. I think that is so interesting right now. Warrants for house searches, orders for confiscations, as well as restrictions on property are also permissible beyond the legal limits otherwise prescribed. So the question I want to ask you guys is, does this, is this our Reichstag moment? There's this article by Stephen Lendman right here entitled Capitol Hill Violence, America's Reichstag Fire. I'm going to read his take on this subject because I found it fascinating and we're approaching the end point of this uh, podcast. A week before 1933 German general elections, a strategically timed Reichstag fire was falsely blamed on communists. In response to what happened, President Paul von Hindenburg signed an emergency decree. Civil liberties were suspended. Weimar Republic democracy died and Hitler assumed power after enough Nazis were elected to assure it. As the saying goes, the rest is history. The fullness of time will tell what's unclear now about Wednesday's Capitol Hill riot while Congress was debating whether or not to certify November's stolen election for Biden-Harris over Trump. Make no mistake, overwhelming evidence showed that he won. This is just an opinion. I will not endorse this. I'm not sure. We, we still got a lot to learn. Democratic challengers lost, but things didn't turn out that way. Was Wednesday's January 6th Capitol Hill riot an orchestrated scheme by dark forces to undermine congressional debate to elevate Biden-Harris to power? Was what happened that Wednesday an American Reichstag fire, a false flag, or an incident staged by over-the-top Trump supporters? So now, in closing, I want to just leave you guys with the notion that, you know, I found... Joe Biden's and Jennifer Sackey's uh, comments on monitoring Americans' SMS messaging, very alarming. Uh, the bans on social media, the bans on Twitter with some accounts such as Dave Rubin for citing the C CDC's own information. Tip polls getting fact-checked for posting CDC information from last year. And we are just in a complete information war out there right now and it's whenever the government is able to clamp down on free speech like this it just makes the disinformation and the propaganda just so over the top and so so rich really it's obvious it's obvious a giant 
obviously a giant psychological operation against the American people orchestrated by several nefarious organizations in the deep state. And I kind of, I'm very curious as to where this is going to end. We're seeing the implementation of the military in Australia to help enforce the vaccine and mask mandates. Biden's talked about going door to door here. And just know if you start seeing foot soldiers on the streets of America or medical organizations going door to door, trying to give you information or trying to get you injected with the vaccine, like, you know, it's already a step too late. You, you're definitely not going to be able to express your uh, opinions on a religious exemption to uh, soldiers or officers going door to door. It's I'm kind of at a loss for words thinking about this right now, but once you see free speech get to be uh, destroyed, as you see in this country right now, as you're seeing worldwide, you got to wonder what's next. You got to wonder what's going to happen and we'll leave you there for next time. Well, this is America unhinged signing off is cosmic marauder free Jerry 88 on Twitter. There'll be another episode in a week or two and we'll keep exploring the clown world that is American society right now. But I appreciate everybody for listening and I'll talk to you next time.